Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this brand new episode of Fishology where we go in-depth on advanced stats for your Miami Marlins. I am Daniel Rodriguez and as always I am joined by Mr. Eli Sussman and Mr. Louis Adio Weiss. Guys, how are you feeling? Big news broke uh, a few days ago. Uh, how are you guys feeling getting ready to talk about this topic? Recording this on Valentine's Day, we are making love to the numbers. Very fitting. Ooh, there you go. So we do this right now. And if you're listening to this, this means you love the analytical side of it as well. So just a couple of big topics that we could dive really deep into. A pleasure as always, guys. Yeah, so let you know you, tonight you guys are my Valentines uh, doing this this episode of Fishology. And uh, one thing I love for sure is the trade Kim Ang did over the weekend. Sending J.J. Blade to the Oakland Athletics for reliever A.J. Puck, a swap of former top 10, top 6 uh, guys in the first round a few years ago. Lewis, you did your due diligence on this going um, studying A.J. Puck. You're going to do a season preview. Talk to me about this trade. Give me the, the Marlin side of this in acquiring A.J. Puck. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're talking about who won out here, I mean, it's a one-one swap, so you're not really going to take long for a winner to be determined in that swapping. I think the Marlins made out very well here. Um, I think, and it's interesting, you know, I've been kind of saying this and mulling over this thought ever since they acquired Puck, but you're gonna, you're kind of talking about now a third lefty in a bullpen of now a bullpen that features three lefties who primarily throw the same two pitches. And I think Puck, and I wrote that he has excellent two-pitch potential and that he would likely be a good kind of like eighth-inning option for them. But you're talking about a mid-to-high 90s fastball. I believe his fastball played up in uh, this year than it had over the last couple of years, you know, just by battling injuries. I believe he was a recent Tommy John guy, but 96.6, if I'm not mistaken, on the average fastball velo. Um, a very good slider. I mean, if you want to talk about run value, his slider was um, – worth minus six runs, which is very good. Um, but I think, like, if he can harness those two pitches, because the fastball, you know, points was hittable. Um, but if he can kind of harness those two pitches and further, you know, perfect that slider, I think he's got a chance to be an excellent two-pitch pitcher. Otani steps in. Puck is ready. And the first pitch is hit softly on the infield on the first pitch, and that's the ball game. How about that? 
We built up all that drama, and on one pitch, Otani hit a little pop-up, and that is the ball game, folks. When you pair him with Scott and Stephen Okert in the bullpen, you're talking about three lefties who are primarily fastball slider. But that being said, um, you know, he's got less than 100 innings under his belt in the big leagues. I believe it's 91 innings, if I'm not mistaken, and 105 strikeouts, which is very encouraging. Um, as far as ballpark goes, though, like if you were to ask me like how he may adjust to Lone Depot Park, if you look at expected home runs on Baseball Savant, you could kind of see where his fly ball metrics are. I believe it's about like one in every 10 fly balls is a home run for him. Um, if I'm not mistaken, he's kind of like, you know, Lone Depot Park doesn't play any differently. I believe he had nine expected home runs in Oakland and nine in Miami. If you projected the season he kind of had uh, in Miami, obviously, you know, the, the home run rate, it wasn't terrible. It was like sub one, but it was like right at 0.9. Um, we'll make for the fact that his fit bordered on 3.7 and the expected ERA kind of told us he was that kind of pitcher. But personally, I think if the fastball can maybe play up a little bit better and he kind of goes away from that sinker a little bit, he's got a chance to be um, arguably the best lefty in that bullpen, though I believe that Scott is, of those three, is the one that does have the best stuff. But, yeah, no, I mean, I'm very encouraged by this trade, especially given the fact that they only had to give up, a, you know, J.J. Bladé for it. And we'll talk about him later. But, Eli, I want to know your thoughts on this as well. This was a particular player that came to mind for me. I mean, the stat I want to get into is his salary as well. The fact that the Marlins were pretty clear about their intentions that they needed to improve the bullpen this offseason. But as we saw from the very start of the offseason, the pricing for especially free agent relievers was even more excessive than I think anybody could have anticipated. We can say pretty clearly that the Marlins just – felt that wasn't efficient enough for them. For a player like this, in a conventional reliever role, you're not going to pitch more than 70 innings a season, if that, at most. And for that money, this team, based on where they are limited payroll-wise, if you have less than $100 million to divvy up, you're they've made this decision that they're not going to give a big chunk of that to any one pitcher. Right now, the highest-paid reliever on the Marlins roster for someone that's actually getting paid by the Marlins is Dylan Floro. And that's at less than $4 million. They were shopping and they didn't find anybody that they felt was efficient enough. So what they do ultimately is go the trade route. And this is a guy that even though he's now what, seven years removed from the draft, he's still pre arbitration eligible. So he's still earning barely the league minimum salary this upcoming season. And I think that's just a big component as to why they, wound up in this trade situation is that he is somebody who stuff wise, he does compare pretty well to some of the more prominent accomplished relievers. And they are just betting on his potential and feeling that uh, in addition to what he mentioned, that potentially the pitch arsenal could expand a little bit to include a changeup that he had when he was being developed as a starter. This is a guy that if he had stayed in Oakland this upcoming season, he likely would have gotten some starting opportunities. He was, if we haven't already mentioned it, the former sixth overall pick in the 2016 MLB draft. And when you're drafted that high, it's because you have a lot of starter traits in you. Now for the Marlins, he's not going to start, but the promise of having that deep pitch mix that will allow him to be successful against both lefties and righties is going to be very important. 
Um, for the time being, you feel really confident in what he can do against lefties in same-handed matchups because of the slider, as you mentioned. As somebody who is six foot seven and gets a ton of extension off the mound as well. Let me see if I have the number. Over seven feet of extension on his delivery. That's, 96 that's percentile, how, too. Nine, exactly. He's, and it reminds me a lot. I don't mean to cut you off. It reminds me a lot with his mechanics. They're a little herky-jerky for a lefty. Um, Jake Diekman, like, when you look yeah. at his like, not the Jake Diekman from 2022 that led all relievers minimum 50 innings with 6.6 walks per nine tied with uh, recently mentioned Tanner Scott. But mechanics-wise – you know, I'll let you get back to it. High 90s fastball, good slider, big extension because, you know, he's six foot seven, so he's tall, but 96 percentile in um, extension. And that's going to help, especially when your fastball is in the 90th percentile. I know that Craig Mish, in reporting this deal, he threw out the name Josh Hader. And immediately I kind of cringed at that because that's not fair. That's completely unrealistic for anybody, um, especially somebody with a relatively short track record. I think Diekman is kind of in that vein. You're going to have some questions about his control moving forward. Um, that's probably always going to be a below-average trait of his. The question is whether everything else, whether the batted balls, whether the swing and miss is high enough to still make him a very good reliever, to make him a legitimate setup man, to make him one of the better overall relievers in this pen. Yeah, with AJ Puck, uh, how do you guys feel him? You mentioned in the bullpen. Where do you guys really see him? Do you guys see him as a setup guy, maybe filling floral um, as the closer? Do you want him maybe earlier, right after the starter? How would you guys fit in AJ Puck in this bullpen? So the way I see it, he's a seventh inning guy with closer potential. It just remains to be seen. If he's a lot of those opportunities and Henry Scott continues to struggle, if maybe that's something the Marlins have to deviate yeah, with Puck, so I don't really think about it as an innings situation with him as to when exactly he comes in, more so as how often you'd feel comfortable using him mid-inning with inherited runners. Like looking at how the A's used him last year, and to be clear with everybody, so much of his major league experience was only last year. That was the vast majority of his career innings came in 2022. Um Early on in the year, they gave him a lot of opportunities with inherited runners, and he had this slump in the middle of the year where it really got out of hand for him. But after that, the entire second half of the season, he was kind of lights out in those situations. When you're talking about how he fits together with the other pieces in this bullpen, I think more so than a lot of these other options that he's going to be a guy until perhaps he settles in as a full-time closer. Like He is somebody that I think Skip Schumacher should be comfortable using in those tight situations when you need a strikeout. Despite what I mentioned about potential control issues, I mean, relative to the other pitchers in this bullpen, you know, it's not necessarily all that much worse than Okert and certainly not as bad as Scott in that department. So with him, I think you could use him in a whole variety of situations, given that he has at least three pit different pitch types that you could use. And that he now has experience last year, at least during the second half of the year, being very successful, even when he's inheriting runners and pitching in high leverage situations. I think that's a big part of the appeal as well, is that he really does. He is somewhat of a Swiss army knife that he could fill a lot of different situations and do it in a way that certainly compared to the outgoing relievers like Richard Blyer and, um, players that are now are going to be squeezed down to the minors to start the year, whether it's like Huascar Brazoban 
or an Andrew Nardi, other pitchers even below him that have less experience. Uh, I think it's a pl- it's a pretty clear cut improvement to the pen as long as he's healthy. And that's ultimately going to be the biggest question is, can he stay healthy just as he did in 2022? Yeah. And with um, AJ Puck, I was just looking up, we mentioned earlier his pitches. And the one thing I wanted to bring you up is I was looking at it. um, You look at his fastball. He threw it 513 times last season, slider 489, sinker 149. And then you go to his changeup and it's just 0.1%. You might think, oh, just a couple pitches. No, it is one pitch. He threw it. One time in the 2022 season, is that something maybe Mel could do for AJ Puck? Have him use that change up a little more so he doesn't really have to rely on those first two pitches? I think it's a good complimentary pitch, but you know, a lot of that too is predicated on what his role will be in the long term. We know as a starter, you know, primarily the old adage is that you need three pitches to really concede or succeed and consistently perform at the big league level as a reliever. Obviously we know that to be two, uh, two and a half pitches. And I guess that's what you can kind of say about his uh, sinker. And that's kind of like his half or his third pitch. So I don't know. I mean, Stodham, I mean, Mel did a great job with Pablo Lopez at um, perfect, uh, not perfecting, but, uh, but kind of conjuring up one of the better changeups in the game and what Pablo had. And, we know other pitchers on that team. Edward Cabrera's got a very hard changeup. Um, I don't know how much of uh, Mel Stoudemire's credit can be given to that, or is that just an organizational thing overall? Um, you know, I don't even think if he's very, very rarely featuring the pitch. And if you go back in the past and look at this twenty or so innings he pitched in the previous two seasons, um, he didn't really feature the pitch all that much to begin with. So, I mean, like maybe that's just him kind of gradually phasing it out and um, maybe Oakland took that approach with him in 2022. So, you know, to be a successful reliever, he doesn't need a changeup. but you know, the way I kind of, what I kind of said about him being relatively samey to the other two lefties and Ogre and Scott is that they primarily throw fastball slider. Um, can you, you know, going back to back with three consecutive lefties, um, I know three batter minimum doesn't necessarily apply to this as much anymore because there's, you know, you can't really pitch the matchups all that much, but you know, that'll start to look samey after a while. And I think that could come back to bite each one of those guys. Um, but I think the sinker is a different dynamic and I don't, so I necessarily don't necessarily think he needs the changeup, but you know, if he further, you know, I mean, if he improves upon it, then there's no reason as to why he can't do it. I mean, we've seen guys like Mark Melanson pitch out of the bullpen with four pitches. I mean, Floro is a multi-pitch guy, so, you know, who knows? Um, But I don't necessarily see that being a make-or-break asset in his skill set for 2023. Right. It's just about finding a solution against righty batters. If he's as good against righties as he is against lefties, then he reaches his ceiling in being a potentially the best reliever in this pen and potentially elite even compared to league averages. If he's as effective against righties right now, what makes him really good against lefties is not just a slider, but also his fastball is just extremely difficult for them to catch up to because they have less time to react. And that pitch against righties is not as valuable. So it's either going to be that sinker becoming more consistent for him. I saw some tape on the sinker and it's it's just inconsistent with the way, way he locates it and the uh, potential for it to get swings and misses is not nearly as high. So either that pitch has to improve or he probably will have to 
dive more into the changeup. There'll be some sort of adjustment there, and I'll, I'll be curious to see what that is. Yeah, and to go from that side of the trade for the Marlins and gaining A.J. Puck, we have to talk about who they are giving up, and that is J.J. Bleday, another top six uh, draftee a few years ago. Um, did not have the best um, of time with the Marlins in terms of being in the majors, um, batting, I believe, under 200, not really performing as well as many would thought when he was first drafted um, to Miami. Um, Lewis, give me your thoughts on JJ on the J.J. Bleday experience for the Marlins. Uh, you know, it started very encouragingly. I believe he walked in his first plate appearance in Pittsburgh, and then he started the next day and hit a double, made a couple of nice catches um, playing center field. And, you know, a position he hadn't really played that much in college. He played it a little bit in the minors. I believe it was about 60 or so games and then came to the majors and he saw extended time there. But obviously we saw that to be a learning experience, to say the least. I mean, it's hard to learn on the fly, especially when you're in the big leagues and adjusting to so many different things, you know. Aikman hits it toward right center. That falls in for a base hit, and it bounces all the way toward the warning track. It scores McNeil. Naquin goes to third. The relay throw too late. It bounces away, but Naquin will stay put. There's no reason why that ball should bounce over his head. Obviously, he just didn't perform. You know, he struck out almost one time. I believe it was 67 strikeouts in 65 games. Um, the biggest thing that you saw with him, though, was like, you know, I guess I don't have access to team scouting reports, but I would presume that to best the best way they would presume to get him out is throwing breaking balls. He was horrendous against the breaking ball. I believe he hit 098 against Kurt breaking stuff this year in 2022. And the expected metrics are like better, but like that's like saying a pitcher with an eight ERA was better with a six FIP. Like he hit the expected batting average was like 190. Um, there was like 417 hitters who had 50 or more, or I believe it was 150. Uh, breaking balls thrown to them that ended at bats. He ranked 398th in expected batting average. Not good. Uh, I mean, yeah, it just just a lot didn't go well with him. I mean, he didn't barrel the ball that much. He was, you know, he's more middle of the pack when you talk about barreling baseballs. But that being said, like he just, you know, there were times when he showed, you know, promise. I mean, he walked 11% of the time. I think, you know, if he say he becomes a fourth outfielder, that is a skill set that kept guys like Matt Joyce in the big leagues for a long time because they were able to, you know, prove that they, you know, had deficiencies, but they were able to kind of mask them a little bit with play discipline. And he had that to an extent. That being said, though, like the overall skill set, he had a 586 OPS in 65 games. That's not going to play. And then it, I, you know, I don't have much faith in him long term either because he's going to go to Oakland, another pitcher's park. Um, I don't expect those numbers to improve much, but yeah, I mean, the fact that Kim was able to kind of get a guy like Puck, who like we've noted has questions in his own right, but having to give up and only having to give up a day, um, you know, again, it's just a product of her, you know, wrapping up a very strong off season. And again, who knows what else she's going to do. So we'll see, but yeah, you know, Blade, he'll get a chance to play every day and, you know, does he deserve it? I don't know, but Oakland's bad. So he may be among the better players on their team if he gets, you know, 400, 500 plate appearances. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think the experiment uh, worked here in Miami. But, you know, best of luck to him in, in Oakland.
I always love it when we have stats that kind of align with the eye test. And from watching Bladé last year, one takeaway that I think everybody had is that he misses so many hittable pitches. Like, there were so many pitches that it looked like he should do damage against them that he either missed or he fouled off. And from Baseball Savant, they keep track of run value based on the location of a pitch in the strike zone. I'll, I'll send a link to people so they can check this out themselves, where they define the location of pitches as either being in the heart of the plate, in the heart of the strike zone, in the shadow of the strike zone, like right around the corners, chase pitches being obviously just outside the zone, and waste pitches being ones that are totally, are supposed to be unhittable, are just mistakes by the pitcher. And with Blade, it was about these pitches in the heart of the zone that he just was not producing value against. He was either coming up empty, or when he's putting them in play, he just was not making as strong a contact as it seemed like he should. So this is um, for us to look at. I put up this in descending order, the value that these players, or I should say ascending value of how much player value these guys provided against pitches in the heart of the plate. Overall, this entire season, Jacob Stallings was accumulated the most negative value. He's 18 runs below average on pitches in the heart of the zone. Miguel Rojas is right behind him at 17 runs below average. And then there's Blade. Out of all the Marlins hitters in 2022, negative 15 compared to league average on pitches in the heart of the zone. This is a cumulative stat. So you get more playing time, you can create more negative value. And the only players that were worse than Blade were ones that were playing basically every day over the course of the season. On a per-pitch basis, there was no Marlin that was worse against these type of pitches than Blade was. This is a bright red flag where I just don't know how fixable this is. If you can't do damage against the worst located pitches that you get in the majors, there's only so many adjustments you can make mechanically and philosophically to change that around. I mean, to even get within striking distance of league average, much less make it a strength of your game in his case much was made at this time a year ago about how much stronger he was. He had a, that Lewis physique entering spring training, which is much different than what <laughs> he had earlier in his professional career. And that's just not necessarily a, a baseball relevance detail about him. And I wonder if he does want to trim down a little bit just so that he is, he can, that his his part he can move through the zone more efficiently uh and that his upper body maybe got to a point where it just wasn't conducive to allowing him to catch up to major league caliber velocity it was that combination you mentioned the breaking balls it was just every type of pitch type um when pitchers made mistakes he just couldn't do anything about it and such a broad and such an important problem that uh, I can understand why his value was so low, even for a guy that very recently was a super high draft pick like him. I'll finish by saying that I thought this trade should have been made at the previous trade deadline. I want to clump Blade with some other comparable players like Peyton Burdick, Jesus Sanchez, Gerard Encarnacion. The Marlins had this surplus of young corner outfielders building up with the veterans that they already had under contract, there just was no way to get these guys all significant major league playing time, even if they showed themselves to be promising as rookies. I wanted the Marlins to be a little more proactive to make that kind of deal before these guys struggled at the big league level and hurt their value. It seems even at the time, 
like a pretty clear opportunity. Didn't have to be Blade, but I would have liked to see them make this choice earlier while all those guys had more trade value than they did during this upcoming offseason. So this is like just one of those little inefficiencies that I think comes back to hurt a team in the aggregate. If you do enough of these type of deals where the timing is a little off, where you're not getting probably what you should be getting for players that have this type of raw talent, it ends up catching up to you with what you all the resources you have to build a complete team together. So I wish Blade some good luck. He's a guy that really understands the game at a detailed level. So I wouldn't put it past him to make some pretty bold adjustments and actually come out on the other side of having a pretty long major league career. Uh, I just think this is mishandled on a number of levels with him coming up through the farm system. And then this decision to move him probably could have made been made earlier if they had noticed the same kind of deficiencies that we were able to see ourselves as a rookie. Yeah. Uh, we wish best here for a digital day, but I think he'll do pretty good in Oakland. Um, like Lewis mentioned, he might, he might get four or 500 plate appearances and let's see what he could do with that new ballpark, new atmosphere. Um, new culture over there in the athletics. Um, but to go from that, let's go into a little bit of kind of the projections that we saw um, that came out earlier today with uh, Petcoa and talking about the Marlins hitters and pitchers. Um, Lewis, I want you to talk to me a little bit. What really stood out to you uh, between these projections, hitters, pitchers for the Marlins for 2023? I mean, it was the one I was kind of bantering about to you guys earlier, and that's I don't understand why Tommy Nance is projected to be the best reliever in the bullpen on a run prevention basis. I believe the projected FIP they had for him was about 371 to a 335 ERA at a 50th percentile projection. Um, Listen, if he gives the Marlins that, I mean, that'd be great because in everything he had done beforehand, and even at times last year, though, he was encouraging, you know, he walks too many hitters. He um, was very hittable in Chicago. I'd be more in line to look at the baseball reference projections that have him at about a four ERA and a 1.3 width. Like that's the kind of pitcher I envision him being. And to be honest, like, you know, with an off season where you kind of saw guys like Charles LeBlanco, Brian Anderson was non-tendered. I was kind of surprised that Nance wasn't a guy that they kind of just t- decided to cut ties with because of their ability to work with relievers that way that we kind of saw with Oker um, and hoping hard to see with Scott. And I don't know. I, I just, I didn't, I didn't really understand that. Um, I looked at Sandy's projections as well. Obviously you have to, he's kind of like the name beyond Jess Chisholm on that, on this roster. And, you know, his 50th percentile was about, you know, a four win season. And with the money that he's making, it's like, can you really argue with like that level of production? You can't really, especially when you're striking out about under eight guys per nine innings and just so efficiently great the way that he is. I I think, you know, those are two things that stuck out with me. Um, Beyond that, Jazz's 99th percentile projections were incredibly fun. The idea of him slugging 550 and posting like a WRC plus in the 150s. Wow, that would make him very expensive if the Marlins tried to extend him. But um, yeah, I mean, and then Luis Arise was obviously another one. You know, his median was about what you'd expect—a three and a half win season with an average over three hundred comfortably. You know, he's this generation's Tony Gwynn, and there's a bit of hyperbole in that. Um, people will get mad at me if they hear that late, when this is posted later. But you know, if everybody's above league average. You know, the way the 99th percentile projections kind of show themselves to be, this could be a good team. Do I think it's the team that 
will sneak into the playoffs? Absolutely not. I mean, realistically, like if you gave me true serum, the Marlins are a 75 win team. And that's if a lot of things go right. Um, but, you know, cynicism is part of the job and, you know, they're just the roster, the way it's constructed, though it is better. I mean, Sherman and Kim did promise and make good on the promise that the team will look different on opening day because there are people that are and aren't there. Um, I still don't see this as a playoff team. And I think that there's still a ways to go in the rebuild before you can really firmly say that. What I wanted to do is give people some context about Pocota. I, I believe it is the longest running public baseball projections that we've had going on about 20 years of this preseason process, always fine tuning their formula to add in new factors that they believe are predictive at this time entering last year. They were projected for around 77 wins, and this year it's actually 76. So the idea is that even if you misfire on one year, they believe that it doesn't necessarily mean anything for the following year. So that even though this team is actually projected to be slightly worse than last year's was, it doesn't mean that they're going to finish slightly below where last team's last year's team actually finished at 69 and 93. This it's. It's a team that, as you said, uh, Pakoda overall has them at 76 and 86, where it's still pretty skeptical about the offense. And it's also skeptical about the rotation beyond Sandy in Luzardo. It has Sandy um, as one of the best pitchers in baseball yet again. And it has Luzardo as somebody that even the 50th percentile projection it looks a lot like last year that they think what he did last year when he was healthy was legit and that he is going to be a well above average starting pitcher for however many innings he goes there's just some skepticism about the the offense uh even more so than i think the average person has even despite the changes so this is a fun graphic that i'm going to share with people when we post this tomorrow is when you look at the 99th percentile projections which is like about as good as you could even dream of for these players, then obviously things go pretty well. But what I like to do when I analyze it is look at the 50th percentile, the 20th and the 80th and between 20 and 80, that just gives you, um, that's kind of the realistic positive and negative spin on it. I think that's like a range that really helps me digest who a player is like using Gene Segura, for example, the 20th percentile is an OPS of 659. And then if you go to the 80th percentile with Segura, it is 711. And that feels about right, where they're projecting him to be declining a little bit compared to where he was last year at this stage of his career. And uh, But on the upside, like there is still the potential for him to be in a slightly better than average hitter, especially when you adjust for the home ballpark. So that's the way that I look at it is they give us way too much data than we have any use for with these projections. So it's about choosing what you find to be particularly relevant. But that was one of the key takeaways you mentioned is what stuck out to me, that Tommy Nance is by a hair projected to be their best reliever. Other than that, it was, you know, the questions about the offense. Pakota loves Luis Arise. They project him to be, once again, the highest batting average in baseball this upcoming year even though there are some questions, obviously, about the power, but they like him as an overall player probably more than most do. And it, they like the volatility of Jazz on the upside. Like, if everything goes right for Jazz, Pocoto agrees that he could be a super-duper star. 
Um, and it likes the volatility of guys like Jorge Soler as well, and even Jesus Sanchez, that if things go perfectly for them, that there's enough power in their cases to really lift up the value of this entire team. Um, but besides that, uh, I think the big picture is kind of in alignment with what other people feel, that this is the fourth best team in the National League East. The playoff odds that Pakoda gives this team is about 4% for this upcoming year. And if you look at it last year to this year, it's even more pessimistic about their playoff chances than they were at this time a year ago. So it's not what people want to hear. Um, and especially it feels weird coming off what has been over the last month, such an exciting stretch of additions, winning now moves. It feels um, uncomfortable to take the, the really – high up look and still see where they are relative to the competition that they're facing this upcoming season. And, but other than that, the Pakoda has a pretty good track record of like falling within the general range of what's to come for this upcoming season. And um, yeah, I think it's a useful reference point when um, again, trying to digest everything that has changed this upcoming year and trying to identify some some breakout players in the organization as well. But for this team overall, yeah, it's um this is kind of a re, a dose of reality. This is just a reminder that despite how exciting the last few weeks have been, that there's still a pretty significant gap between them and the powerhouses in the National League East. Yeah, and, and looking at those numbers really quick uh, as a final topic, final thought, it's just looking at Jazz's batting average. I know that's just not really a stat that we like to go here and, and talk about here in physiology, but it really just stands out when you look at his 99th percentile, and it's still his batting average only at 266. That kind of really tells you what type of player Jazz is in terms of batting, where the, his best season or his best possible outcome is just barely over 250. So – what does that kind of mean to you that, you know, Jazz is never going to be a guy like Luis Arias hitting over 300 or they have here Gene Segura 280, that his best possible or his most potential is someone who barely reaches 270 in his best season or at least projected to. So my question to you is, do you guys even think that Jazz can reach um, that level in terms of hitting, being someone that can average around 280, 290 in his career? A reminder of just how young Jazz is. He yeah. just turned 25, and this is only for the 2023 mm -hmm. season. So if he does, like, have enough, take another step forward offensively, then the projections will change to account for that. I, I, this is just regarding the upcoming year and how much of a player, the type of player that he's going to be moving forward. And to be fair, um, these projections do rely on last year's data, last year's run environment, and there are some pretty significant differences, we think, going into this year with the rule changes, the main one being with the limitations on the shift. And Jazz, along with a lot of these other power-hitting, pull-happy left-handed batters, we think, theoretically, that they could gain a significant amount of hits just by doing what they already did and no longer having defenders being allowed to position themselves in those prime spots on the field. So that is still an unknown, and that's probably one factor that is not accounted for in these projections. So when we, I think that is a good point to make there, Daniel. That like, 
I think there is a scenario where Jazz does hit higher than 266 this upcoming year. Uh, I personally am a little skeptical about that, and I think that is one of the, the few weaknesses or limitations of his game is whether uh, there is enough contact skills with him, especially against left-handed pitching. If he's going to be playing every single day and facing lefties even more than he did last year, um, he's either going to have to be a better hitter in those matchups. Otherwise, they're going to drag down his overall numbers as well. So that's probably another factor that we need to keep in mind with Jazz. He's, I think it's fair to understand that, like, in my view, it seems that he is the one hitter that people are most obsessed about heading into this year and what trying to size up exactly how where he stands in the pantheon of best players in the league. And the big question that he has not answered at all to this point in his career is whether he could hit lefties. If he's going to get the opportunity to do that, then – um. Yeah, I think that's a really significant question about his game moving into this year. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it, um, I mean, I think batting average has its place. I don't think it's the preeminent gauge on offensive aptitude. For Jazz, I think it's kind of like Byron Buxton where he's never going to hit for a high average, and that's primarily because, and to a lesser extent with Jazz, He's aggressive at the plate. That being said, I was listening to Buster Olney's podcast today, Baseball Tonight podcast, and Vinny Pasquatino won, first baseman for the Royals, who average baseball fans should probably keep an eye on. That guy is going to be very good, good play discipline, um, something we'd like to see more guys in the Marlins kind of adapt, uh, adopt in their game. But that being said, he talked about how when he was in about double A a couple of years ago, how they played under the no-shift rules. And about over a half season of data said that his – and this is and Pascatino is a guy who is very much into the metrics. He he understands the purpose that they serve, but doesn't eschew uh, traditional means by which player evaluation used to be predicated on. He said that his BABIP went up about ten points over a half season with the shift ban, and that leads me to say that I think the increases that it or the way it may help Jazz and maybe just everybody else is just going to be marginal. Um, if it. If he becomes a 260 hitter, even in his 70th percentile, then that's fine. But I think the skill sets, you know, the ability to hit for power at, you know, he's playing second base, but he's going to be moving to center field. Those assets are still going to play up, even if he's an average defender. He's also very fast base runner. He's also shown that he was making improvements as a base runner after being leading the league and caught stealings as a rookie in 2021. Um I think if all of the other skill sets are kind of playing at their weight or at least, you know, or even above it, I don't, he can hit 230 if like he, it, so long as he's doing other things on a consistent basis to help the team win. And I know that's the last thing you would ever expect to hear on this podcast because our emphasis is on objective analysis. Um, I don't think it matters because he's going to, he's going to be a valuable player regardless of whether he hits 230 or he, miraculously hits 310. Um, you know, he'll he'll provide you value in some way, shape, or form. But he's going to be a guy that's going to have peaks and valleys. And, again, like Eli noted, he's still young. He's going to be prone to that. Yeah. Um, I think with that, it's a perfect time um, to end it for here. Just an episode going over AJ Puck, the JJ Bleday trade that, that shook Twitter when it came on just a few hours after FanFest uh, discussing our projections. But um, – for Eli, 
for Lewis, for myself, this has been Fishology. And always, wherever you're listening to this, go fish. <laughs>